I want to tell you about a tradition Brittany and I have when we have some out-of-state friends, out-of-town friends, I should say. There's, there's a certain pocket of them. If, if you guys, some of you guys remember Youth Call. It's, it's a lot of people from Youth Call. Um, when they come up and visit and come to our house, we will have an evening of sharing, catching up with life, and eating ice cream. Now, yeah. hooray. That, okay, the Psalms got nothing but ice cream got a clap. Um, <laughs> what we call it is past the pint. Because we would go, we will go to the store and each person involved in the evening will pick their own pint of ice cream. Ben and Jerry's, Haagen-Dazs, whatever. And the fun of this is when we get back to the house and have our deep chat, deep life talk, uh, we all spoon a couple spoons of the ice cream, then we pass the pint down and you receive the next person's. I know, incredibly healthy. <laughs> but but the, it, the fun of it, though, is that you can pick any of the flavors in the grocery store that you probably would never pick because you just don't want to commit to a whole pint of it. But you can pick anything you wanted to try because you don't have to be stuck with it all night. We all get this special assortment of flavors. So, usually it looks like this. We'll go to the store, not Jensen's, obviously, because we want to save a couple dollars, but go to Stater's, and we'll look at the vast... It's mind-boggling how many ice cream types there are, but you look at the pints, and... um, like someone's picking strawberry cheesecake. Somebody's picking chocolate peanut butter cup. Uh, somebody's picking like a rocky road. Someone's picking a, a, a sea salted caramel chip. Someone. <laughs> no, I'll keep that in mind. Um, someone. Yeah, someone's picking um, like the half, the half baked cookies and cream. And then. True story, we're, we're picking these flavors, and then this guy picks vanilla. <laughs> and we all look at him and give him the hardest time. Vanilla? Who picks vanilla with all of these options? You're, you're, you're party pooper. <laughs> so that reminds me of how often life can be. Because vanilla is often treated as the bland, the ordinary, the non-special flavor of ice cream. It usually needs something to go with it. Apple pie, chocolate sauce, sprinkles, stir some peanut butter into it, whatever. I'm not knocking anybody who eats ice cream vanilla plain, but it is the plainest of the ice creams. It's the unsung hero of ice cream, right? It never gets a lot of credit, but it's, it's everywhere. And this guy picks vanilla. When we're all excited to have some exotic flavors, we're like, we've all had that. Where are you, you're bringing nothing to the table. Needless to say, that one was only a quarter eaten by him. And that, we kind of just passed that one down. But vanilla reminds me of how life usually goes. Life is often ordinary, it's often bland, and it often needs something added to it. There's this element of everydayness in life. 
And we want there to be some sprinkles on it. We want it to be a rocky road kind of a day or a Minton chip kind of a day. But nine out of ten times, we're handed vanilla. And we just go forward with it. Vanilla is the everydayness of life. We tend to live in this way of looking, we tend to think of our Christianity as needing to be like the rocky road and the mint and chip and the cookie dough kind of variety. And we want that excitement. But reality is, is that most of life is vanilla. And so we tend to live, Christian-wise, we tend to live from Sunday to Sunday. This is when God works, and this is when my life gets better, and this is when I can worship Him. And then there's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And then there's Sunday. And God works in my life again. I live for the Sundays. My Christian life is energized and is activated. I don't really know what I am or what I do Monday through Saturday. That's, so we got sprinkles on Sunday and chocolate on Sunday, but we got vanilla in the middle of the week. This everydayness. We get in the car and up here we drive the same exact route every day. We know when not to be on the 189 because of the school buses. We know when everybody else goes to the post office, so you tend to ignore that time because you just don't want to see everyone in your pajamas or your slippers. You know that the grocery store is dangerous unless you have your makeup on. You know... That's not a personal thing, by the way. We do laundry. We... We eat breakfast, we deliberate about lunch, we decide if we're going to do a microwave dinner or a real dinner, we then debate if we're going to have dessert afterward, if we've been good enough to have dessert afterward, Um, then we kind of unwind, some of us read, some of us watch television, then we brush our teeth, then we sit in our bed and scroll mindlessly on our phones, set our alarm, go to sleep, and then wake up and repeat. There's a lot of mundaneness. A lot of sweeping crumbs from under the table. A lot of taking kids to school. A lot of just going to your job. And, hi, Sally. Hi, Bill. Just a lot of, like, just the ordinary vanilla routine. That's everydayness. And there's an element where we think that God works in the big events, but we don't know how to handle him in the everydayness. Our theology is sometimes too big to allow God to work in a typical day. You might wonder what in the world this has to do with anything in Mark. It has to do with this. In Mark chapter 11, you have Sunday. It's Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. We'll take a quick look at it. This is one of your big Sundays, right? Exciting stuff happens. Now, when they drew near, this is Mark 11, 1, to Jerusalem, to Bethage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, hey, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, "Uh, what are you doing taking my colt? (laughs) Uh, Well, they told them that Jesus had said, and 
they let him go. Oh, okay, the master needs it. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches and they, that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! It's here! This leader whom we are hoping will bring the kingdom of God to Jerusalem is finally making his way to the city. And we are, ent- we are shouting for joy to bring the king in. They're excited. This is a momentous, big day. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was getting late already, he went out of Bethany with the twelve. Sun was going down, it's time to go home. So he stays at a village just outside Jerusalem. I now want you to flash forward to Mark chapter 16. Mark 16 is also Sunday. When the Sabbath was passed, the Sabbath fell on a Saturday for the Jews. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. Now, Jesus had died. He's been buried in a tomb, so they're going to go and anoint his body. But they didn't do it the day before because it was the Sabbath. So now they're going, and in verse 2, very early on the first day of the week, Sunday, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. <laughs> a dead body's supposed to be in there. You see someone sitting up. Hey, how's it going? What? Do not be alarmed, he said, verse 6. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Some Sundays are this climatic celebration of praise and hosanna and yes our hopes are coming true and some sundays are astonishing and it's ineffable it's unspeakable you you don't know how to put words to describe what god's doing in your life the resurrection easter sunday i feel like we live often and i think mark feels this way too that we live from sunday to sunday God did this in my life, and then God did that, and I can't wait till next Sunday. And we just endure the wilderness of Monday through Saturday. But what Mark does in this gospel, and none of the other gospel writers do this, Mark is unique in making a time signature for every single day of the week from Sunday to Sunday when Jesus is in Jerusalem for his last week. We call this Holy Week. We call it Passion Week. This is the week before his death. He enters Jerusalem on Sunday, he dies on Friday, and he rises on Sunday. And Mark takes the time 
to tell us when every day of that week happened. Why? Because I think that when it comes to the way of Jesus, we often think of this as a momentous event. It's something that we accomplish. It's something that we do, that we see. I am now walking the way. I'm at church. I am now walking the way. I am on a mission trip. I am now walking the way. I am witnessing to someone. But rather, Mark wants us to see that the way of Jesus is an everyday sort of way. It's something you do when you are stuck behind that bus going through Blue Jay. It's something that you do when you are at work again. It's something that you do when you've been cooped up in the house of kids for too long. It's something that you do when you're cooking rice and chicken again. This is the way. It's everywhere. And Mark wants us to see it's just as important on the Sundays as it is on Monday and Thursday and Saturday. And so he shows us Jesus at work, in action, every single day of the week. He doesn't want us to live from Sunday to Sunday. He wants us to live from Sunday through Sunday, through the week. That Sundays are just signposts. They are not when Christianity is activated. And so let's take a look at it. In other words, what we're going to see here is that the way is not Rocky Road ice cream. It is very much vanilla most of the time. So, you saw Sunday in chapter 11. Chapter 11 continues on to Monday in verse 12. So I'm going to show you each of these days and what happens. So, in verse 12, you have it saying this, on the following day. There you go. Palm Sunday. Now we're on Monday, the following day. You can all... You can go ahead and it might be helpful if you just mark these as you read because then you'll see Mark is showing us each distinct day. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. So they got up in the morning, they're coming back to Jerusalem. And he apparently skipped breakfast. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Sounds like a Monday morning, doesn't it? And the disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. He's still hungry. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Is it not written? Excuse me. It's a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. There you go. That's Monday. Now, Mondays tend to be this way. We get grumpy. We're hungry. Um, We see here the topsy-turvy kind of a day. Jesus upturns tables. And sometimes you feel like part of the vanilla of life, the everydayness of life is, oh no, not one of these topsy-turvy days. The table got flipped over again. Ah, that, I thought I had a handle on that. Now it's out of hand. Things 
change. Things are driven into chaos. Yet, the way goes through those days too. It's not like God is saying, oh, you got up alongside the bed. Sorry, I'm over here. You're over there. (laughs) See you Tuesday. He's with us. The way weaves and winds even through these days where it's just frustrating and it's unsettling that everything is just a mess. Now, nobody liked what Jesus did, nor do we like it when things get flipped over in our lives. So the leaders want to find a way to destroy him. The plot thickens. Now, in verse 20, we see Tuesday. And just so you know, we're not going to read all of Tuesday. It is a very long day. It's the kind of day that you feel like the end of the world is coming because it was just that long. So if you look at verse 20 and you flip all the way over to the end of chapter 13, which is a full page flip and many columns over in my Bible, that is Tuesday. It's a very, very long day. And you and I know what it's like to go through those days, don't you? It just seems like the day never ends. Well, let's see how it begins. As they, um, verse 20, we're in chapter 11, verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, so once again, they're on the routine, right? They're on the same route. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, them. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Tuesday begins right on the heels of Monday. Oh, that tree you cursed, it's withered. Now, what is going on here? What you'll notice is that Mark is showing us the tree and leaf, the temple is overturned, and now the tree is withered. And he wants us to read those together. He does this in several places in his gospel, uh, where he's, it's called sandwiching. You sandwich events because you want event A to interpret event B. So in other words, the uh, fig tree is becoming a symbol of the temple. So as Jesus comes on Monday to the fig tree and says, no figs, no fruit, may, you be, no, may no one ever eat from you again. Then he goes and cleanses the temple. And then the next day he comes to the tree Oh, look, it's withered. What do you think is being said? When Jesus went to the temple, he looked for figs. He looked for fruit. He looked for worship, but found none amongst the Jewish leaders. So as the uh, fig tree was withered, he makes a scene, makes a show, and says, you guys got this all wrong. And one day, what he's teaching his disciples is, the temple will become like this tree. It will be withered to its roots. It will not stand anymore because the system is broken. It's broken. 
That then explains these very confusing words he says about prayer, because you can take it, pray whatever you want, it'll be given to you. You can be like, oh, cool, I want a new job, I want a new house, I want a new car. That's not the point. Take it in context. If you look at this, in verse 22 he said, have faith in God. Well, they're Jews, they know that. Why is he saying that? Because people were putting their faith in the temple. And Jesus is saying, don't put your faith in the system. Don't put your faith in the priests who are corrupt. Put your faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, what mountain? The mountain they're standing on, Mount Zion, on which Jerusalem is built. Whoever says to this mountain, be thrown into the sea, it will be done. What's he saying? He's saying again, the temple is not the sacred thing. It is not God. If you pray that this thing will be flung down, it will. Because God is the one you're supposed to have faith in, not the temple. And so then the context of whatever you ask will be done should be read along the lines of not, it shouldn't be read as, God, I want this. Yay, thank you. You gave it to me. It's more like whatever you've been going to the temple to ask God for, now ask God himself instead. Because that system, that building is going to wither like the fig tree. That's what he's telling them. Well, Jesus has rode in on a donkey to shouts of Hosanna, very threatening when the Roman Empire is there watching and saying, it's a festival, don't let anything get out of hand. Well, that could get out of hand. Um, Then he comes into the temple and he throws tables around and acts like he's in charge. So, the authorities were in strategy mode all night long, like... On Tuesday when he comes in, we got him. You guys ask him that question, then you follow up with that one, then you follow up with that one. They've got their weapons ready. And so there are three trap questions perfectly laid. And this is what Jesus has to navigate on the very long Tuesday. Verse 27. When they came again to Jerusalem, and, at, and they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and elders came to him. Chief priests, scribes, and elders. These are basically like your Bible teachers and pastors. Okay, So they're, they're like religious leaders. And they say, By what authority are you doing these things? Flipping tables, riding on donkeys, and taking praise from everyone? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me that. And they discussed it with one another, saying, Ah, we didn't foresee this. Hmm." If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, well, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, Yeah. We do not know. And Jesus said to them, eh, okay, I don't know either. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Trap was laid to catch Jesus in one of those dangerous yes or no questions, and he evades it by throwing the question back on them. Christian, this is very helpful because we actually, on your Tuesday, your lousy Tuesday, your long Tuesday, 
you will run into people who want to trap you in your faith. Here's, here's a classic. You, so you're pro-life. Why do you hate that women should have freedom over their bodies? You hate women. Noreen. <laughs> okay, that's, that's a mean question, because she doesn't, right? But this is, this is one of the arguments for abortion, is women should have autonomy over their bodies. But they'll throw the question at you in a way that's already cornered you. Jesus is not going to have any of that, and nor should you. We are never obligated to answer someone's question in the way they asked it. You may want to answer whatever's going on in their life, but you don't have to play on their game or play in their game. They're setting the rules and they're asking you to come play. It's not even fair. It's not a level playing field. Uh, This is a lot... This is part of the problem Christians and atheists try to talk together is they're all trying to set their own rules and make each other play by them. It doesn't work like that. Um, It's okay. It's okay to stop someone and say, what are you really wanting to know? Like, why are you asking me this? It's actually the rabbinic tradition which Jesus was practicing was a question should have, by good teachers, been answered with another question. And then it would have gone back and forth with questions. Jesus is throwing it back at them. Uh, We would do better as a people and as a nation, and especially as a church, if we got better at not just reacting to people's skepticism or questions or trying to corner us, but got better at asking questions about them before we ever try to address what's going on. Because how often is what's going on in here different than what they're actually saying, right? There's always a front at first. Well, Jesus is going to do this a few times. Um, he then tells a parable in chapter 12 that basically says the temple's going to be destroyed because the religious leaders are killing the prophets and they're going to kill Jesus, but it's in a parable. And they get really angry because they realize he's talking about them. But then in verse 13, they rally and they send attack number two. 12 verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Pharisees and Herodians. The Pharisees were that group of people. They were not off, they were not authority. They were just lay people who liked to apply pressure on other people. You're not keeping the law. You are a bad Israelite. That's their job. They're not paid for that. That's not what I mean by job. Um, but they're just lay people that take that burden upon themselves. The Herodians were the party of, support King Herod, he's a great chap. So they're a political party. Now in verse 14, they came and said to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. Oh, flattery, be careful of that one. You're like, okay, get to the point. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. More than you know. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, you might or might not understand what they're trying to do here to Jesus. They are trying to get him in so much trouble. So Jesus has a huge following of people who believe he's the Messiah, this deliverer. And then he's got this big brooding crowd of religious leaders and 
pro-Roman rulers are looking at him going, he's a threat, he's definitely a threat, we should get rid of him. And so they come and they say, okay, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Okay. A zealous Jew looking for the kingdom of God would say, no, don't pay taxes to that pagan king. But the rulers are trying to keep things down would say, oh, pay taxes to Caesar. Just let them get off our back so that we can keep our temple and keep worshiping God. Jesus will get in trouble either way he answers. Either the people will turn on him or the rulers will say, aha, he said don't pay taxes to Caesar. That's treason, execute him. And they have exactly what they want. What's Jesus going to do? Well, like I said before, he's not going to play the game by their rules. He's going to level the playing field. This is genius, okay? So what he does in verse 15 is he said, it says, Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Interesting. Okay, denarius. It's about a day's worth of payment. It's a Roman coin. Where are they right now? They're on this vast courtyard that surrounds the temple. You can see it today, the Temple Mount. And there's a lot of teaching that went on, a lot of just Bible talk, a lot of rabbis and their disciples and debates like you have going on right now. So they're in a sacred space. Do you also remember what Jesus was overturning the day before? He was overturning tables of money changers. Why are there money changers? Well, because Jews would carry two types of coins. Everybody used the Roman coins, like a denarius. But there was a problem with the denarius. It came from Caesar. And there was the face of Caesar on it. Why is that a problem? Because the Jews believed you couldn't make a graven image of any man or beast. It would be an idol. Furthermore, on the Roman coin, underneath Caesar's face would be the words, Son of God. So now we're getting very blasphemous, right? So the Jews would have to take the coin and turn it over for, um, for Jewish money, which they call shekels today, so that you can use proper money on the temple. And instead of an animal or a human, there would be a symbol of a reed on their coins, just a piece of grass or something. Um, so when Jesus asked to see a denarius, they don't see this coming. They're like, oh, we got one right here. Here, look at it. And Jesus, whose face is this? Right? Okay, so you can kind of see what's starting to happen here. Um, verse 16, they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Okay, so what Jesus just did, as they're trying to trap him, is he just had this backdoor trap ready for them. And he asked them to show him the denarius. So they right there, being so-called Jewish leaders, pull out a pagan coin with a blasphemous image on it on the Temple Mount. So they have circumvented the whole money-changing process themselves. And now they're like, oh, look, we got a pagan coin. Oh, Jesus like, my point's been made. But if you really need an answer, if that belongs to Caesar, give it to him, which you should have done. And what's God? Give to God's. 
But here's what he doesn't say, in which everyone would know as they slept on it is, wait, what isn't God's? Everything's God's. Our temple is God's. Our land is God's. My clothes are God's. My family is God's. It all, Caesar belongs to God. And Jesus wiggles out of that one. Then in verse 18, the third attack, the Sadducees came to him. Now, the Sadducees are very rich and wealthy. They lived in two to three-story houses. Yes, back then, they had these mansions in Jerusalem. And they often were of the priestly line, although not always. Uh, They were pro-Roman people. They only held to the books of Moses in the Bible. All the prophets they didn't like. Why do you think? Because the prophets accused the rich and those who used their money in a bad way and corrupted um, religion with politics. Well, that's the Sadducees to the T. Now, the Sadducees also, therefore, did not believe in the resurrection because the rich don't really need an afterlife, as kind of the way the thinking back then went. So they come to him and they give him this ridiculous scenario of a man who marries, then he dies, and she has to marry his brother, and that brother dies, and she has to marry his other brother, and that brother dies. And this happens like seven times. The proper question Jesus should have asked is, well, what's she cooking? (laughs) But they make this ridiculous scenario in which this would happen. The Jews would always, you would have to send your brother to marry so that she would, so that your dead brother would have a son in the lineage. So you would keep on marrying down the line until there was a son. But they're making this ridiculous scenario to make fun of the idea of a resurrection. So they ask in verse 23, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus' answer is purely theological here. Um, He says that they're wrong because they do not know the power of God first. Verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So second, he's saying, look, you're thinking like as if your good life is simply going to continue and that's the eternal life. It's going to be a little bit different. And in verse 26, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, something that they actually do read, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses was being told this, those guys were long dead, 400 years plus. So Jesus says, is he not the God of, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And then finally somebody gets it and tells him, um, about the greatest commandment of loving the Lord your God by your heart, soul, and mind. So there's some good in this day. But now, in verse chapter 13, Tuesday ends like this. 13 verse 1, As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. They're talking about the temple, okay? And Jesus said to them, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Remember he said, hey, if you say, let this mountain be thrown into the sea, it will be done. It's going to be done. In verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, hey, um, 
tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? What things? The stones of the temple being dismantled. The fig tree that is alive without fruit suddenly becoming withered. The mountain being thrown into the sea. When are these things going to happen? When's the temple order going to be destroyed? So Jesus begins to answer that question. It's lengthy. It is often used when we study future end times events. Um, But what I want to point out for our purposes today, tonight, is that what Jesus answers is all this language about the apocalypse, right? Because this is often how your incredibly long Tuesday can end. You feel like everybody's against you. Everybody's trying to corner you. Everyone's trying to trap you, trying to label you, trying to get you in trouble. Everyone you talk to seems to have an ax to grind against you and are practicing their moves on you. Every, the universe seems to conspire against you, right? This is a very long day. Those are the days when it feels like all you want is that Jesus would come back and end it all now. Why was I born? End it, Lord. Please bring the rapture. That's how Tuesday can feel. Yes, the way weaves and winds through your long Tuesday as well. And what about your lazy days? Does God work in your lazy days? Does the way of Jesus wind through that as well? You know when you have that long Tuesday, what do you want the next day? (laughs) You just want a snow day. You want a hibernation day. You want a pajama day. You want that day where you're lucky if you brush your teeth. So in chapter 14, we come to Wednesday, the lazy day. It was now two days before the Passover. So there you have your time signature. We're moving forward two days to the Passover. And the chief priests and the the scribes were asking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, but not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Then look at verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Here we have sandwiching again. Because now, in the middle, we're meant to compare this with those two episodes of betrayal. So verse 3. Chapter 14, verse 3. Here's your lazy day. It's It's a short day. We just read the beginning and end of it. So I just see this as a lazy day. Like, no one puts on clothes. They're just in their pajamas all day with fireside, maybe watching TV, reading, joking, playing card games, passing the pint, whatever. Um, Ice cream, of course. And we never see them leave the house. All we see is them eating, lounging at the table. So 14 verse 3. And And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper... As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There was some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. Well, that's basically your salary. That's how expensive this was. 
and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And, I tr- and truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Okay. What you have here is the very first disciple. The 12 don't get it. All through Mark, they don't get it. Last week, we actually saw Jesus questioning if they were even on his side. He said that they were just like the Pharisees, blind, having eyes but not seeing, ears but not hearing, and heads but not understanding. That's what he told the Pharisees. The disciples got nothing. Peter told them not to go to the cross. James and John said, that's nice, you're going to the cross. Can we sit at your right and left hand when you come into the glory of the kingdom? And Jesus kept on face-palming and eye-rolling, going, oh, you guys don't get it. The way is about servanthood, not about power and rulership. But here, here, while Judas, another of the twelve, is out to betray him, a woman comes and gives her all to him. Yes, people will criticize you on the way as you are trying to faithfully walk with him, even in your pajamas. But Jesus defends and realizes, my disciples are faithful to me regardless of the setting, regardless of how active or lazy your day was. What about those lousy days? Those days when everything's a Debbie Downer. Everything. It's not like everyone's against you, but everyone lets you down. What do you do those days? Well, Thursday tells us. So verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, so there's your next day signature, when they sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus tells them, go find me a room. So they find him a room. And in verse 17, when it was evening, he came with the 12. And this is supposed to be a good day. It's the Passover meal. It's a celebration. It's, it's like Thanksgiving in a way for us. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Oh, way to kill the party. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, What? What? Is it I? Is it I? Ah, And they're now all in angst. And their hands are trembling as a bread tries to get to their mouth. Then in verse 22, as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, now they would normally break the bread and eat it at the Passover, but Jesus is now changing the symbolism. It was meant to say, God delivered us from Egypt. Now he's going to say this, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given it, given thanks, he gave it to them and they drank, they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. 
And now they're all looking at each other going, wait, one of you is going to betray him. And now he's somehow going to disappear. What do you mean? This is your last time you're eating with us? This was supposed to be a good meal together. We've had a hard week. And now we get to actually celebrate a holiday together. And you're telling us all these bad news things about your death. And we're somehow supposed to remember you by eating bread. And it's your body. This is weird. It gets better. Verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, maybe in the minor key, who knows? They went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus said to them, by the way, you will all fall away. Oh, thanks. A lot of confidence you have in us. Verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. This has been a very lousy day. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it was possible, the hour might pass from him. Jesus knows he's going to the cross, and he's praying that there'd be another way. In verse 36, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Guys, I'm greatly distressed. I'm troubled. I told you my soul is very sorrowful even to death. This has been a really bad day, and you couldn't stay up and pray with me? Lousy friends. And then, as if it couldn't get any worse, Judas comes in verse 43 and kisses him, and the band of soldiers arrests him. Judas betrays him. And now he is handcuffed. And in verse 50, they all left him and fled. Thanks, guys. Now, your day, your typical lousy day, may not be this bad, but trust me, Jesus understands. And the way does go through this kind of a lousy road sometimes. Now, in verse 54, Peter followed Jesus at a distance. And in verse 66, as Peter was below in the courtyard, so Jesus is being tried by the Jewish council. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But Peter denied it, saying, I neither know you, I neither know nor understand what you mean. He's called out again, and in verse 70 it says, But again he denied it. And in verse 71, a third time, but he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, he will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Yep. The way does weave and wind through the lousy days too. It's going somewhere. But we need to trust that these days matter and try our best to remain in prayer and say, all right, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Then we have those lonely days. And we've had... A topsy-turvy day, a long day, a lazy day, a lousy day, and now a lonely day. 
chapter 15. It's Friday. As soon as it was morning. Tuesday was so, Thursday was so lousy, Jesus never slept. And now Friday is going to feel lonely. And so it was morning, and the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they basically decided, okay, let's take him to Pilate. Now, Pilate is Caesar's representative over the region. So they're basically going to Rome. And Pilate says, okay, look, I have this deal. Every Passover, I'll let go one of your prisoners. Do you want Jesus to be released, or do you want Barabbas to be released? And the crowd chanted, release Barabbas, we want to kill Jesus. So Pilate, eh, eh, whatever, kill him. Quite literally, he washes his hands of the matter. And so Jesus is mocked, and then in verse 21, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Here you have a true disciple carrying the cross. That's what Jesus has been asking us to do. I think that's why Mark goes through the trouble of naming him, where he's from, and who his dad is. They brought him to Golgotha, and there they crucify him. Verse 24, they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And in verse 29, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And so the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He can't even save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Oh, please help us see and believe. We want a revival. I added those parts. Those who were, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And then, when the sixth hour had come, this is verse 33, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus had cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a lonely day when not only do your disciples forsake you, but now everyone's mocking you and it feels like God himself is not even on your side. Do you mean, does the way of Jesus wrap and wind and twist through that day too? Yep, when you feel lonely, when you feel abandoned, when you feel like things can't get worse, that is also part of the path. God is there with us in all of these places, whether we feel it or not. But one, one lonely soul sees it all. Verse 39, and when the centurion, that's a Roman soldier, who stood facing Jesus, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Ask a Roman who the Son of God is. They would pull out a coin and say, well, see right here, it's Caesar. Caesar's the Son of God. This Roman centurion sees the way Jesus dies and says, no, this man was the Son of God. We've seen some unlikely disciples starting to follow Jesus, haven't we? All right. And then there's the Saturdays. 
or at least the forget the forgettable days. You know those days when just like nothing happens, like literally nothing happens, and you're like, "What is that even a day? Did we even like? How is it already the next day? Well, that's Saturday." And when evening had come, this is verse 42. When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, uh, Joseph asked for the body. um, And they find out that Jesus is already dead. And then verse 46. Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking Jesus down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And uh, he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. That's it. That's Saturday. It's the shortest day of them all. And it's kind of like, all right, lay that one to rest. Not much happened. Even in our tradition, we don't celebrate much between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. I know some traditions do celebrate some things, but on a large scale, Saturday is the forgotten day in the Holy Week. And there's a lot of forgettable days in our lives. Yet God is working in that day too. And then you come to Sunday, Easter Sunday, and Jesus is raised from the dead. I took you, rather than taking some of these big sections on their own, I took you through each of the days of Holy Week because I wanted us to see. Just as we keep moving through a week, we're going to keep moving through this week. And some days something interesting happens and other days nothing happens. Some days are awful and some days are exciting. There's a mix and match of things and that's the same thing with our lives. There's an everydayness to life that we cannot escape. Even though our society at the present is absolutely terrified of the everyday. We are in a culture that wants everyday to be lived to its fullest potential. Achieve your dreams. It's got to be extraordinary. And we're fed this from a celebrity culture where anybody who's anybody is somebody that everybody knows. And everybody else doesn't feel like anybody. Like all the big businesses, even in business, the big businesses are swallowing the small businesses. You got to belong to something big. You got to have a life that matters, celebrity culture. Uh, we have reality TV. Where, ooh, these people's lives are interesting. We're going to watch season after season of following this person around in their car and in their life. That's a somebody. Nobody follows my life. Nobody cares that I'm stuck behind the school bus trying to get to the village. Nobody cares. And social media, whether it be Facebook or some of the newer things like TikTok, there are platforms in which we have the opportunity to say, look at me. And what we notice is our friend standing by the Eiffel Tower, doing past the pint, graduating. And we're like, I'm still taking my kids to school. I'm still waiting to win the lottery. I'm still trying to finish this crossword puzzle. It's easy to look at the other lives around us and to compare and realize that, well, they have a special life and I am stuck in the everydayness of vanilla. It is white, 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 bland, and white. We fear everydayness. We wish that sometimes it would not be, be another day because everydayness implies ordinariness and ordinariness implies meaningless. And that if I spend the rest of my life in the so-called everydayness, 
then I'm going to end my life in meaninglessness. There's something in us that just yearns to have the, the spectacular. We, we, we look at our, our, our field of vanilla and we say, give me the sprinkles, and we throw it on and say, woohoo, I'm somebody. Give me the Oreos, and we crunch them across the surface. And the peanut butter, and we're stirring that thing in. And the whipped cream, and we're str- and, and a cherry. And then we take a selfie, or we bring people over, or we make sure we put it on the back of our window on our car, however you do that sticker. We want everybody to see, uh-huh, look what I can do with vanilla. We're not okay with just accepting everydayness. So I think Mark wants us to see that the way is an everyday way. No matter what the day, no matter if it's topsy-turvy, long, lazy, lousy, lonely, or forgettable, it is all on the way of Jesus. Genesis 1 tells us this, actually, in the creation. Do you remember how it goes? Um, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then there are six days of active creation and a seventh day of rest, right? Each of the six days has a set routine. Even the creator is apparently not very creative in the way he brings the world into being. Do you think of that? Every day starts with this. And God said. Exactly that. And God said. Every day. And every day ends with. And there was evening and there was morning. Day two. And God said, blah, 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 blah. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Day three. And God said, blah, 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 blah. There was evening, there was morning the third day. Day four. Get it? Okay. God is not afraid of routine. God is not afraid of the ordinary. God is not afraid of sameness. Even in our worship, he said in Exodus 20, the fourth commandment, you shall worship me on the Sabbath. Six days you shall work, the seventh shall be for me. I want a pattern. I want a rhythm. Six, one, six, one, six, one. G.K. Chesterton uh, had this really interesting thing to say about routine and about mundaneness and ordinariness. Uh, I have to read the whole quote to you because it's that good. He says, a child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence, of life. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit, fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They, children, always say, do it again! And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For, gro- <laughs> for grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, 
For we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. The repetition in nature may not be a mere recurrence. It may be a theatrical encore. I love the delighted image of a child seeing the same trick again and again and again, (gasps) again, and laughing every time, and imagining that's God with the sunrise. Again, it did it again. I can't wait till tomorrow. But why are we not like that? Because we fear that our lives are meaningless. And so we're looking for something other than vanilla. I'm sorry, but the way of Jesus is often just that. It's the faithfulness to keep walking with him and being ready when the rocky road does come. See what I did there? (laughs) So every, every day matters because of the cross. The cross tells us that you matter. Every person matters on every day. That's why he would give his life for us. So when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One answer can be so that I will never let Larry know he's forsaken. So that I will be with my people in the bland everydayness as they walk the way with me. And the resurrection, as Jesus comes back from the dead out of the tomb, it's to say everything matters. It's not all going to be erased. It's not all going to be crumbled up like your thousandth draft of that letter you're trying to write and thrown into the trash bin. It will all be restored and it's all being used and it's all coming back because I'm the God who resurrects the dead. I don't throw anything out. The resurrection says that every single vanilla day matters. Yep. Even when you're doing nothing extraordinary or significant, because you're simply trying to be a good spouse or a good employee or a good parent. The resurrection makes it matter. So we can journal every day or semi-every day, because what does that do? It helps us to see where God is in that day. You can journal. Second, you can pray. There's a specific prayer called the examine, which is um, basically just a prayer where you review your day and you ask God to show you where, where was he in this day today. And you're reflecting on how you responded to God's presence in the day. And sometimes you realize you missed it and that you should have been grateful or you missed it and you sinned as a result. But it shows you where God was in your day. So you can journal, you can pray over your day. Or third, you can listen to stories of other saints. I learned to see how God works in my everyday when I hear somebody else talking about something I've been through, but I didn't think of God being in there, but they did. And then I'm like, oh, God was in my life there and then. Hearing stories, sharing stories. You know how many times you went through something, but it wasn't until you were sharing it that you realized, I was talking about God that whole time. But in the moment, I knew it not. Wasn't that Jacob? God is here and I knew it not. When he had the dream on the rock in Bethel. So sharing our stories helps to reveal God and his way in our everyday. Let's pray.